Well, this evening, uh, we come back to the book of Ezekiel. And as we talked about, uh, uh, we truncated last week's message on Ezekiel 28. Uh, I thought we would complete those three chapters from Ezekiel 26 to 28. However, we only got through two of them, and, and I find that all the more appropriate as a result of this week's study and all that the Lord has shown me and encouraged me in regarding this truly amazing passage. Uh, uh, as we look into this, we recognize that this concludes the, uh, the major prophecies against Jerusalem, or that the section just prior to this rather concluded those prophecies, those finishing in chapter 25. And the next prophecies we'll see specifically rated, related to God's chosen people will be in chapter 33. So all of this material from Ezekiel 27 through Ezekiel 32 all relate to the nations. That's very common in the prophetic works. We see the same thing in Jeremiah. We see the same thing in Isaiah. To a limited extent in Daniel and to a, a less or a greater, uh, a more limited extent in the minor prophets. Because, of course, in their shortness, they focus more on Israel with, uh, with one exception. So as we recognize the conclusion of the prophecies against Jerusalem, we also remember that the point of Ezekiel's ministry was, for the first time in history, a function of the individual response of the exiles. Although it was nationalistic in its condemnation, its impact was to be individualistic. And it was for the hearts of the individuals to come to understand the truth of their father and their savior. We see that our messages to Jerusalem concluded just three years prior to the sacking of Jerusalem. That destruction of God's chosen city occurs in 586 B.C., which means that we were at, at about 589 B.C. at the end of chapter 25, which was the ninth year. We see now that we've escalated by two years as we got to chapter 26 and its time stamp. That has now taken us within one year of the destruction of Jerusalem. And as we have come to that time frame of that destruction, and we see that destruction occurring in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 21, now we see all of these prophecies against the nations, and what we had just seen, and we're really in a continuation of chapters 26 to 28, which are all prophecies against Tyre. There is no other more extensive section in Scripture of prophecies against an individual nation than here in Ezekiel and against the nation of Tyre. We begin to see why as we look into our text tonight, but it also shows us the power that existed in what was effectively an island nation to begin with. As, as we consider all of Tyre's fall, remember from our last time that we discussed that there were basically three waves of attack that came upon, upon Tyre. We don't see that specifically from the biblical text. We do see a reference to multiple attacks, but we don't see those three indicated. We look back historically 
and look to the extra biblical literature to see Assyria attacking Tyre, to see Babylon attacking Tyre, and ultimately it'll be Alexander the Great in what becomes our intertestamental period that will finally destroy the island nation of Tyre. And each of these are being referenced in the prophecies and we'll see aspects of that tonight. As you remember that, keep in mind also that there were three regions of Tyre. Most of the areas in the ancient world were singular cities that were city-states. They had governors or kings. They had walls about them and they became autonomous entities. So it would be as if Mobile was its own state, as if um, Pensacola was its own state, and so forth. Now, then there would just be villages around them, but primarily the population centers were inside these cities. Tyre had grown. Sidon was the original large area, and and back in the time of Moses and following, we see the Sidonians as being a very strong force. Little by little, the Tyrians, those people of Tyre, have taken over that area of Sidon. And what was once only an island nation sitting out off the coast in the Mediterranean Sea a short distance, then expanded and it became a a two-part city. There was the walled city on the island, and then there was the walled city on the coast. And they had so much strength and so much money that had come in because all of the Mediterranean traded in Tyre, for it was one of the few places on the east coast of the Mediterranean that they could actually bring in large ships because it's so shallow along that coast of the Mediterranean. So they had great, great wealth. So they had expanded from an island city to a a coast and island city, and then they had taken the territory, most of which used to be Sidon. So Tyre is now referenced as an island nation, a city just inland, and an entire nation in of itself. And in each of the three waves that came against them, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Greeks, they continued piece by piece to tear down Tyre and to fulfill God's prophetic judgment against the nation. The Assyrians came in and they basically hammered on the villages. They took the easy picking, the small towns where there were not much walls, and kind of on their way through to conquer northern Israel, they wiped out most of Tyre, at least in the villages. Then we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar will come, and it is really he is the primary force that's being spoken about in the judgment. He will wipe out the coastland city. That is the city that's right on the coast in the big walled area there. And it will ultimately be Alexander the Great that will finally conquer the island city of Tyre. And of course that will happen in about 332 uh, BC. So as we recognize this, we come to this text in Ezekiel 28, this concluding portion of the prophecy against Tyre. And as we consider Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, both of which we'll look at, there are many similarities. Many interpreters, because of the complexity and the similarity, have said that these two chapters are the same. They have said that the individuals being referenced at the beginning are really symbolic 
and that effectively we have pictures of Satan in both chapters and that it is Satan who's being spoken about exclusively and not the human entities that are alluded to. We'll look at these very closely tonight. We'll find out that they are not the same and that that assessment is also not correct. That the passages are similar, but we see that both are exclusively referencing something more than just Satan at work. Now, not to say that these passages are not without challenge. Okay, the things that we're going to discuss tonight, they are not going to fit neatly into a lot of our Sunday messages where we've got everything tightly packaged and a bow put around it, and we can kind of move back and forth from uh, cross-reference text. None of that really exists for our text tonight. So we'll find that as we look into this, these are excellent texts for us to sharpen and hone our Bible interpretation skills or our hermeneutics. But what we find out is that there will still be some challenges amidst those fairly clear distinctions. But we will get clear distinctions. And because of the challenges and the interpretive questions, I've titled our message for tonight, So What's Up With This Demonic Judgment? No laughing. So what's up with this, she can get away with it. So what's up with this demonic judgment? Ezekiel 28 is our text, and our first point in verses 1 to 5 is judgment deserved. Judgment deserved. Look at verse 1 of Ezekiel 28 with me. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. The first thing we notice in verse 1 is there is a change in the title. And no longer is he called the king of Tyre here, he's called the leader of Tyre. That word is also often translated in the Old Testament as either ruler or prince. The king at this time in Tyre was Ithobal II. Not important about the spelling, but it's important that you recognize that individual, Ithobal II. And we also want to remember that the destruction was phased over time. Therefore, the picture is of the rulers of Tyre, plural, over a period of time. Charles Lee Feinberg writes that it was really the spirit of Tyre that was being addressed in this prophecy. So there was such a wickedness, there was such a darkness, there was such an element of pride that went all through the dominion of Tyre as an island from before the Assyrian attack all the way through to the Alexandrian attack, a time of around 500 years, although that's only a portion of Tyre's dynasty, that there is a spirit of this darkness that pervaded this island. We'll see parts of that. And therefore, they believe that he's not called a king, but rather a ruler as a general reference. So there's a general tone to the chapter, which is emblematic of Tyre, but it is her ruler, Ithobal II, who is in view humanly. The question becomes, is that all? 
Is it just that human ruler? Or as some commentators believe, is it the human ruler at all? Or is it Satan that's being referenced? Well, this leaves the question, was this a human ruler or was this a succession of demons posing as human rulers or was this Satan himself ruling? Some would say, and many say, that that is what's happening. The ruler makes himself out to be God, but what does it say in verse 2? He is only a man. Okay, there is a clear distinction for us. It says right there, and we'll see it repeated, he is just a man. He is a tremendously arrogant man. It's interesting, in our men's study, and the principle number 18 that we looked at yesterday in the study, that, which was knowing your limitations, that the function of one of those aspects of limitations was recognizing our pride. And as we looked at about six different texts in the Old Testament, we saw that pride and arrogance are two different facets, that arrogance is elevated above pride, and that in almost all of those texts, there was an associated evil that was immediately following that arrogance. There is a progression of pride to arrogance to evil that is inherent throughout Scripture, and that's exactly being referenced here for us. So historically we see that the kings of Tyre proclaimed themselves to be these great rulers. They actually proclaimed themselves to be gods. Now that shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly what the Roman emperors did. They proclaimed themselves to be saviors. One commentator notes that this self-deification was the greatest sin of these rulers. It says there in verse 2 that they were in the heart of the seas. Now that's a reference we saw back in chapters 26 and 27. And it simply, it doesn't talk that Tyre was out in the middle of the Mediterranean, but it was the heart of the Mediterranean because all of the trade came there. And you remember we spoke about all of the island and coastal regions, Spain, Italy, Sicily, Greece, around into Turkey, all the way down the coastline of the Mediterranean into Africa, all traded in Tyre. So it was, a, it was a place that was the heart of the seas because uh, it was such a massive center for commerce. So as we see this, we remember again who the king was at that time, Ithabal II, and that this was again that phased destruction that was going on. But the key point in verse 2 is that he is not a God, but a man. If he is not a God, but a man, this rules out exclusively that this could be Satan in that text. Now, some would say, well, it switches a little further in verse 11. We'll look into that. But I believe that this point shows us contextually as well that this is not Satan. Now, there still could be a demonic element that's being referenced. We'll look into that. One thing to note regarding those commentators who would say that this is Satan or that Isaiah 14 is exclusively Satan is that never in the scriptures is there a case of a demonic indwelling that does not cohabit an existing body. We see, we see the, angel, the good angels, the holy angels appearing to mankind 
without going into a human body. They have a human appearance, but there is no indication that they are indwelling human bodies. But when we see the demonic elements throughout the Old and New Testament, they are always indwelling another body. All the way back to Satan in the Garden of Eden. If he disguises himself as an angel of light, think about that. Wouldn't he have had as effective or even a more effective approach to Eve as an angel of light rather than a snake? It's, it's reading in between the lines, I will give you, but it is worth thinking about. But never in the scripture does it occur without an indwelling of a physical being. So I think that's very important for us. Verses 3 to 5 are a series of statements revealing the extreme pride of the king. Each of these statements are brought forward as if true, but all they are is an extreme expression of pride. Look at verse 3. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. Is he really wiser than Daniel? No, he's not. But he believes that he is. He thinks that he knows all of the mysteries of the world. Daniel had become so well known now in his 25th year of ministry there in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar that his knowledge had gone all the way out through the region. But let's think about where Daniel's knowledge came from. When Daniel interpreted dream, did he say, oh, I know what you're talking about. I got this thing. I remember, you know, learning about this or, you know, I have this wisdom. He never said that, did he? It was always God who gave him the interpretation of the dreams. So the wisdom was not Daniel's, it was God's. And yet he's saying, I'm wiser than Daniel, therefore I'm wiser than God. That's how we know these are false statements based on the context. He goes on, your wisdom and understanding have given you riches, even gold and silver. Although the overall understanding was a focus on again the rulers of Tyre in general there's a specific understanding that the present king Ithabal II is being addressed the comparison to Daniel is a clear indication we wouldn't equate three different kings or a group of kings with one man Daniel so this is focusing us on one king at this particular time all of this was further confirmation of the unrestrained pride that was going on and the danger that existed in that. We can become so proud that we convince ourselves that we are really something. And we've seen plenty of people who have convinced themselves that they're really something. And they really are not. So we need to recognize that this is what's going on in these contexts. The self-deification and the immense pride was why these rulers of Tyre are pictured together as one king whose judgment there is deserved. So we see that that is our next point. The, we went from the judgment deserved to this judgment that is initiated in verses 6 to 10. Judgment initiated. And verse 6 confirms that this is the beginning judgment that it is because of pride. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because, of, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, because you are exceedingly prideful, and you have sought to make your heart as the heart of God. 
And yet verses 7 to 10 show this judgment initiated. Look at them with me. Therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. And they will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of your slayer, though you are a man and not God, in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Verse 7 shows us that there will be many that will come upon them, that there will be these strangers, these from outside, who will bring their sword against his proposed wisdom and his inability to be taken down. But they will, in verse 8, bring you down, again, back to the heart of the sea. You have proclaimed yourself as the heart of the sea, but you will be brought down to the heart of the sea. You say that you are a God, but you are not. You are a man. Again, our point emphasized that this in the first verses is absolutely a man that's being spoken above. And this is judgment initiated and gives way to our third point in verse 11, judgment demanded. Now this is where our interpretation starts to get interesting. This is where commentators say, all right, now there's a switch here. Some will say, that it still references the previous individual. Others will say that it is a complete change. Here is the challenge that occurs with this. The first word in verse 11, again. There's a continuity from the previous prophecy to this prophecy by that very word, that there is a connection that comes to this. And we see a further connection in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. In the context, we understand that this is the same individual who has been referenced in the first 10 verses. Look at these verses and let's talk a little about a, a bit about what's being said here. Verse 12, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazzi, the turquoise, the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Before we go on to the rest of those verses, we just want to stop here and look at this for a minute. As we recognize these things, there is no question that there appears to be a reference that goes beyond the king of Tyre. When we see a seal of perfection, when we see Eden, the garden of God, all of these begin to remind us of Satan. I believe that that is because it is Satan who was behind the man who was Ithabal II, He was so prideful, he was so arrogant, he had so much evil that he was reflecting these aspects of Satan. Now we can see in these components how it was a reference not only to Satan, but to the man. You had the seal of perfection. That's a reference to all of the power that existed in Tyre. 
It is arguably one of the longest standing and most powerful nations that existed in the ancient world. And it was a tiny little island. It's like Dauphin Island becomes the capital of the United States of America. And they do whatever they want and they rule and you do what they say or you don't get any of their goods and they control all of the flow of merchandise. That's how significant Tyre was in their power. He could have had that seal of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. We talked about last time how that was a center for arts. How there was all of these things that existed there. And the king himself exalting his own wisdom. You were in Eden, the garden of God. This could simply mean that there was a beautiful Edenic-like garden that existed in Tyre. If we go back and we look at the extra-biblical text, we see detailed illustrations of the gardens of Tyre that were absolutely amazing. You know, we are so blessed here to have some beautiful gardens, to have the, the Mobile Botanical Gardens, to have the uh, gardens out here. What's the name of the garden down here? Bellingrath, exactly. You know, to see some of the areas even around uh, USA Hospital for uh, Women and Children, all those gorgeous statues. I mean, you know, just driving down the street from there yesterday and seeing all the trees down the boulevard and, and they're blossoming. Well, there were huge and gorgeous gardens there in Tyre goes on and it talks about the precious stones. All of the stones from the world were traded there. It is interesting and a great study to recognize that nine of the 12 stones that are mentioned back in the creation of the temple and also in Revelation are listed here. Not all of them because it was not a full component of God's provision and blessing. The gold uh, that it talks about at the end of verse 13 or near the end there was the workmanship of your settings and sockets. The word settings and sockets is kind of an interesting translation. It can actually and probably is better translated as tambourine and flute. Uh, I did not look through as to why they changed that, but there is a musical connotation to this. So, but these are the things that were in them. But it is at the end of verse 13 that we begin to see a bit of a transition. On the day you were created, they were prepared. It's hard for us to understand all of these things being created on the day that, or being prepared on the day that Ithabal II was created or born. There is more of a satanic reference here, and it is moving towards Verses that will show us more of a satanic nature. The king is still envisioned behind this, but there is very definitely a satanic element. Look at verse 14. You are the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. The anointed cherub absolutely is a reference here to, a, to Satan. Uh, cherub is a word that is a reference to an angelic being. This tells us that there was a time where Satan was on the mountain of God and that he walked in the midst of these stones of fire. When we think of the stones of fire, what do we think about? 
the fire that was underneath the throne in Isaiah, do we not? Isaiah who said, woe am I, for I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim flew with a tong and took a coal from underneath the fire, underneath the altar at the throne. That's what's being referenced here. This is very definitely a divine picture of heaven. We are getting information about Satan that is nowhere else indicated in the scriptures. But it's telling us this to show us that this king of Tyre was exalting himself as he was being pushed and motivated by the enemy of God, by Satan himself. He is the one who was blameless in his ways. No man was ever blameless in his ways. Now we could say that that applied to the king of Tyre because he was so arrogant and proud. Certainly it begins to move back to him as we see the unrighteousness found in him at the end of verse 15. And verse 16 again moves us back more closely to a human king as it talks about the abundance of his trade. Satan did not trade goods. He was never a part of that world. And goes on to say you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Again, it pictures Satan, but there is a human king that continues to be referenced throughout this. So this is the, the picture that we see is this element of a human king that is empowered, perhaps possessed by Satan, but absolutely moved in a satanic fashion. All right. Before we jump on, and I want to bounce to Isaiah 14. Got any questions? There may be more, and that's okay. This is we don't usually do this. We should. And so if you've got, you know, any time something comes up, yes, Carol. Because God wants us to see pictures of the inside and the inner workings that we would in no other way have revealed for us. Yes, it is complicated and it does push us to really seek to understand and that's what God wants. It's, it's very much akin to what we've been talking about with regards to Melchizedek. He wants to push us to the deeper things. He wants to see what's going on here and really so that we can keep on path and recognize we can interpret this without getting off in left field and saying, oh, this is Satan all of a sudden that's being spoken about as a king. Well, where does that occur? Why would that be justified? Well, some would say it's in Isaiah 14. So let's go to Isaiah 14 and let's talk about that. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Yes, sir. We haven't got there yet. Sit, stay with me. Um, absolutely it is, though, yes. Yeah, yeah, I did, on purpose, on purpose. Um, we will come back to there, and yes is the answer to your question. Again, but it is both that are being connected. Carol. <clears throat> Yeah. 
But when it comes to God, is there anything that is too much? And there is, there is part of the problem. You know, I, the name it and claim it and the health and wealth gospel folks are absolutely heretical. And we ought to have no relations with them. But I have many friends who have come, who still are, some of them in Pentecostal churches. And this is the problem with those churches. They don't give them enough meat to continue to chew on. And so they begin to doubt their own salvation. And then they recognize that they have pumped them up on an emotionally driven roller coaster to drive them to salvation. And, and, they, and they lose the fact that there is so much there. And, they, and all of a sudden, well, I'm, I'm out of the emotion. I'm out of the excitement. I'm out of, you know, okay, I'm speaking in tongues. I'm not going to go start barking and rolling on the ground. I have some sense of dignity. And so, you know, what's left for me? Frankly, and, you know, we've got to be careful about this in many Christian organizations. Young Life is a very powerful and excellent ministry that saves a lot of young people. But they don't do what they ought to do and drive those young people on to solid Bible teaching organizations. They keep them there because it's our focus and our foundation. And we just keep sending them up to the camp, you know, Camp Malibu, which sounds like Malibu, but it's in Canada, where they can smoke cigarettes and hang out as long as they don't smoke inside. Oh, well, that's pretty Christian. But it's a great start. But these organizations that are so evangelistic and so initially focused have to push people on. We have to be pushed into the deeper things of God because if we keep drinking milk, our teeth are going to rot out. and We're never going to want the meat of the Word of God. Okay, Isaiah 14. Sorry about the soapbox. Isaiah 14. Here we go. Ready? Isaiah 14 and 1. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The people will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved that you will take up a taunt against the king of Babylon and say, Okay, let's set our context very, very quickly. We're in the first half of Isaiah, which as we've talked about, is the section on curses with a little bit of blessing. This is obviously blessing. This is obviously futuristic. Isaiah speaks about the coming judgment of Israel. It has not happened yet. So by the time Jacob is again chosen, verse 1, this is a future eschatological context. The context of Isaiah 14 is speaking of the future. So what do we do about that section in verse 4, King of Babylon, that the taunts again? Go to Revelation 17 through 19 and read about Babylon. This is the king of the future Babylon, which by the way, many conservative commentators, Dr. MacArthur, Dr. Thomas, and many others, believe Babylon of Revelation is the city of Jerusalem. I absolutely agree. So here is this king that they're going to take up a taunt against in the future when they have taken captives, when they have again been called to restore the covenant that God has made with them. So all of our context is end times. This is revelation stuff and beyond. Now, let's move ahead. Verse 4. 
Take up a taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressed has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes against you. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. Okay, stop there for a minute. As we look at this, this fury that is ceasing, and it tells us that there was a huge war, that there were all these who were bringing, as verse 6 says, unceasing strokes with fury those which subdued the nations in anger and with unrestrained persecution. Go back and read Revelation. This is exactly what's being spoken about. Zechariah adds further color to that. It says, verse 7, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. Ever happened yet? When's it going to happen? When Jesus Christ returns to reign and stand on the Mount of Olives eschatological, clearly indicating that. Is this Satan or is this a human king? Verse 9, Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises the kings of the nations from their throne. They will all respond and say to you, even you have become made weak as we. You have become like us. Satan is never moved to become like people. Who is? Who can we think of in the end times that this may have fit? Antichrist? Human king? Indwelled by Satan? Who will rule the world? Who will perform signs and miracles and wonders in the sky? He is still a man. He is a man that is dominated and indwelt and empowered by Satan, but he is a man. The king of Babylon here is a reference to Antichrist, whoever he may be, and his role in being empowered by Satan. Because of that, because of that stronger, demonic, satanic influence, notice how much more the next verses refer to Satan. Verse 11, your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. This further confirms that he has a human body that is fitted for an eternity in hell because maggots will eat him. This is exactly what Mark talks about when it speaks of hell as the place where the fire is not quenched and where the worms never stop eating. Verse 12, How you have fallen from the heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. All of these human terms. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country you have slain your people may the offspring of evildoers be mentioned forever prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers they must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with its cities I will rise against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon the name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will also make a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice when we get to those sections in verses 12 through 14, the elements of absolute satanic reference. Fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. We see that exact same concept being brought forward in 2 Peter 1.19, where a third of the, set of the stars of heaven fall. O star of the morning, son of dawn, you've been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Here is one who is exalting himself as only Satan could. But this is still a man that is being possessed by Satan. It is not Satan himself. And the text, just like Ezekiel at the beginning, had more of a human tone to it. It goes to a center section that is more powerful, that is more satanic, and moves to the end again where it is back to the reflections of a man and his death. These texts are about men that are empowered and or indwelt by Satan. We learn incredible things about Satan's fall in these texts. We have to be careful about what we learn from these texts. We can begin to extrapolate into things that we do not know and, and scholars and academicians have gone wild with these things. This is what's told to us. We need to stay within the confines of what's told to us. But there is no question that in both of these passages, human kings are being referenced. One in a near future time actually in a current future time in Ezekiel with Ithabal II and the second in a future time in the human Antichrist. Remember those three in the unholy trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Those three will rule through the time of revelation until such time as Christ returns to crush them. And they are ultimately thrown into the abyss. So, hopefully that gives you a deeper understanding of what each of these texts is speaking about. And now let's go back and pick up where Rusty was in chapter, or verse 16 of chapter 28. We saw judgment desired 
which because of his pride, we saw judgment initiated, judgment demanded, and beginning in the middle of verse 16, we see judgment concluded. Ezekiel 16, I'm going to begin at the beginning of the verse. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. This absolutely is a further reference to Satan and his being cast out. But it also is applicable to Ithabal III who will be crushed by Nebuchadnezzar as the city is also crushed in the next wave that comes upon Tyre. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of splendor. I cast you to the ground, I put you before kings that they may see you. Again, we see this returning more and more to the human contingent. Verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to the ashes on earth in the eyes of all you see. In verse 18, the sanctuaries that are profaned are the great sanctuaries of all of the gods that existed in Tyre. In order for them to to be able to take advantage of the trade, the world around them was so pagan that they had erected shrines in different parts of that island to all of the different deities. And, And they have all been perverted, each of those sanctuaries, and that's what's being referenced. And that all of this has consumed him, and that his pride has brought him low. Verse 19 confirms this. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. God will destroy that wicked king despite his empowerment by Satan. This is judgment concluded. Verses 20 to 24 give us a little amended piece of judgment as it talks about Sidon. This is the only reference to Sidon and Ezekiel, the nation that used to be great and that Tyre conquered, and it says that it too will come under the judgment. We can just fast forward to verse 24. And there will be no more for the house of Israel a prickling briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. The Sidonians used to be relentless upon Israel. They were the ones who were very strong in the worship of Molech, which required child sacrifice. And these were the thorns in the flesh of Israel and those who scorned them, but that will stop. Well, the judgment amended gives way to the judgment extinguished as we see this wonderful, encouraging conclusion in verses 25 to 26. Thus says the Lord God, When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and will manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they will live in the land which I gave to my servant Jacob. Then they will live in it securely and they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorned them ran about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. 
28 times so far in the book of Ezekiel, he has brought forward to us, then they will know that I am the Lord their God. That's why God is doing all of this. It's wonderful to recognize that this encouraging part and this point of the restoration of Judea and of Israel comes after the destruction of this initial man who is a king, who is empowered by Satan, And in the previous text, in Isaiah 14, the restoration of the nation is what begins it. So we have, really, there is a flow that's brought forward to us by two different authors and the Holy Spirit orchestrating that these are two similar events, but that happen at different chronological periods. One in the time of the near future that Ezekiel was prophesying about, and one in the far future that Isaiah was prophesying about. That's especially amazing when you consider that Isaiah and Ezekiel are switched chronologically. Isaiah being written in 750 B.C., Ezekiel being written in 586, almost 200 years later. And they take opposing positions regarding that prophetic text. Now there is mountains we could have looked into into this, but questions that you might have about some of these particulars. Isaiah, yes, Bill. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. You know, for a great discussion of that, um, Dr. Thomas's commentary on Revelation, that two-volume commentary, have you got it? It's a two-volume white commentary. It is pretty much the finest commentary on Revelation that exists. Robert L. Thomas is the author. Uh-huh, he's the author. But it's Bucks, and I've got it on my shelf. So if you want to look at it, why don't you just come get it? Okay? And you can come read it. And it's got a discussion, and it talks about all of those options. But it argues why Jerusalem seems to be the most logical of all four of those locations. The, the spiritual consideration of kind of the, just the darkness of the world, uh, Babylon physically, Rome physically. But Jerusalem, in the context of all of that, really seems to carry the theological and the exegetical weight of the text. Yeah, two volumes. Two volumes. I think it's called uh, Exegesis of the Book of Revelation. 1 through 8 and 9 through 22, something like that. Yeah, good question. I saw your eyebrows go up when I mentioned that. Other uh, thoughts or questions? Okay, well, as you do have those, please come and see me. Please go back and read some of those. Think more thoroughly on it. The important part of this is, you know, not only is it amazing to learn, but these are the kind of texts that hone our abilities to interpret Scripture and are so important for you to understand and to recognize what I've just said. And I know I said tons in a very short time. 
but I'd love to talk with you individually or as a group anytime more about that because there aren't a ton of passages like this in Scripture that are almost standalone passages and that by looking at the context and carefully interpreting each of the verses, we can come to a clear understanding. And admittedly, there are still challenges in them, but this is really what helps us to know that we can, and and when we start looking at texts like Revelation, which is also at times very difficult to understand, these are the kind of texts that help us get on good solid ground in our Bible interpretation skills.